0: Gospel in Isaiah. We talked last week about Isaiah and learned about Isaiah being one of the great prophets of Scripture as we looked at those first 39 chapters. Uh, Most of those are sermons and oracles. It's not necessarily written in chronological order, but it's good for us to remember that this was a message for the people of Israel and for the people of Judah. And it was a message that had great meaning and it has a great meaning for them. and has great meaning for us today. As we look at Isaiah, I'm reminded that Isaiah is quoted more than any other prophet in the scripture. 60 times in the New Testament, Isaiah is quoted. Uh, Matter of fact, some say it's the fifth gospel, it's the gospel of the Old Testament. And we're certainly going to see that today as we look at the scriptures and as we look at the Messianic prophecies. Now, I'll remind you, uh, as we talk about this, remember the graph that I showed you last week. Number one, uh, we'll look at another graph here in just a moment, but there are, uh, there's God who is at the top, obviously, uh, and he speaks to the people through prophets. Uh, his prophet is his spokesman and he speaks specifically to the king until the king's not listening like Ahaz uh, or Manasseh, some of the evil kings, then he speaks directly to the nation. But the way it's supposed to do, God speaks to the prophets, the prophets get the word from God, they give the word to the kings and the kings to obey and to instruct the people and the nations as to how to live and what direction to go. And then the nations go to the priest as the priests are the, so to speak, ambassadors the intermediaries between God and the people. They offer sacrifices on their behalf. They offer offerings on behalf of the people unto God. This was the way that this system worked. Uh, and this was the way that God had set it up, up until uh, the time, obviously, of Christ. Uh, and the prophets had ceased at that point, John the Baptist being the last of the prophets of the Old Era. Uh, now, as we look at that, I think it's also important for us to understand, we looked at the first 39 chapters, <clears throat> and that was a message of judgment, a message of warning, a message, if you don't repent, judgment is coming, but then judgment comes, that's verses 40, or chapters 40 through 40. Through 40 through 55, excuse me. And then the return, uh, the reconciliation is 56 through 66. So that's the whole book there. Now, let me give you another graph to help you understand uh, where we are and what's going on and what's transpiring. And I think if you can get this in your mind, it'll help you as you look at the story. And as we talk about Isaiah, we talked about this last week when that the judges were leading the nation until the people said, God, please give us a king. God grants their request. So Samuel is in fact, the last judge and becomes a prophet to the people. He is the one who goes to Saul and says, Saul, you are to be king. He's the one that also goes to Saul and says, Saul, you will not be king. You've disqualified yourself. He's the one who anointed David. And then we see Solomon. And so the nation is thriving during this time. This is the nation of Israel as we know it. But then when Solomon dies in 922, we see the kingdoms divided, the north and the south. So you you have the north, Jeroboam, one of his sons. The south becomes Judah. The north is the northern ten tribes. The south, Judah, is the southern two tribes, which is Benjamin and Judah, and then the rest of the tribes appear on the north. Uh, we talked about how Jeroboam was not a good king. How he uh, kind of made it a pluralistic uh, culture. He made he synchronized uh, Canaanite, the Canaanite worship of Baal, with. Uh, Yahweh, he was a bad king. He let a lot of stuff happen, led the, the nation in a bad direction. And they mostly just had bad kings in Israel until their destruction by the Assyrian empire in 722. And then that's the end of Israel as we know it in that sense. Okay. Uh, so those 10 tribes are gone. They're, those are called what you sometimes hear this term, the lost 10 tribes of Israel. Okay. But meanwhile, Judah has been somewhat faithful. Rehoboam, Uh, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, these are decent kings. Then you have a terrible king, Ahaz, and you see the Canaanite worship coming back in. Uh, You see the pagan idols coming back in. Under uh, Ahaz, he is a wicked and terrible king. Judgment is given. Isaiah is prophesying hard. He is saying, Judgment is coming, Ahaz, if you don't repent, if you don't lead the nation in the way that God has commanded. And Ahaz said, I don't want to hear from you. Speak to the hand. Matter of fact, don't even get, get close to the hand. I don't want to hear from you. I don't like the things you see. I'm changing the channel and watching something else. And so that's exactly what he did. He didn't listen to God, <clears throat> he listened to his own people. He had false prophets that told him what he wanted to hear. And thus we see the decline of the nation of Israel, but we're still seeing some economic prosperity. So everybody thinks things are fine. I E there is a hint for us today. Then Hezekiah is a good King. His father was a terrible King, terrible person, terrible human being the worst, but he has a godly mother. And Hezekiah, through Hezekiah, great reforms, he tears down uh, the the pagan idols. He brings back the worship of Yahweh and its purity. Uh, And we see a reformation revival during the time of Hezekiah. Uh, But then we see Manasseh, his son, terrible king, brings back the Canaanite worship, uh, brings back the paganism. And uh, he has a bad son has a, 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 brief, a brief time with Josiah, who is another good king, his grandson, but then it falls off and it's terrible. The judgment comes and Jeremiah is prophesying. This is what's gonna happen. He's the prophet immediately after Isaiah. and even, They even have overlap. Uh, also, Ezekiel is in there. They're saying, look, Judah, um, destruction is coming if you don't repent. And sure enough, they don't. And we see, here in 587, 586 BC, the fall of Judah. At this time, Nebuchadnezzar with the Babylonian empire comes in and they completely demolish Judah. Uh, They come to Jerusalem, they tear down the walls. Not only do they tear down the walls, they tear down the temple. They leave no stone unturned. Uh, They decimate the city. They kill a large portion of the young men, and then they take the rest as captives uh, into Babylonia. Matter of fact, they are led off as refugees. They're placed outside the city. They live as refugees with no home, uh, with no occupation. Um, Most of them have lost family members. It's a terrible situation. It reminds me of what's going on in the United States today. I think about this. I think about just this week, uh, what has transpired this week. Of course, there was Ida, which over 70 people were killed. There's still over 700,000 people without power. Uh, Then you look at what's going on in Afghanistan and thank goodness uh, we have some people in your church even has supported uh, the deliverance of some of Americans and Uh, in allies out of Afghanistan, as well as multiple others. Uh, Matter of fact, there's something called the Pineapple Express, which is a group of volunteers who are people who were special forces, who were military personnel and government workers who have stayed behind and who are uh, getting a lot of people out, who are bringing people to rescue. so thankful for groups like that. Um, you, You think all is lost and God is still working through a remnant, just like he was here, just like I believe he was now. And then I look at our country and then this week, Harvard, our most prestigious university by at least by some, some estimate and just hired uh, for their chief of president and chief of chaplains is an atheist. Um, and I was just thinking, what does he pray with you? But anyway, nevertheless, he is, uh, he's now in charge and Washington post had a great article. They said, uh, boy, we really want to celebrate this moment. We're a, um, a under, underrepresented group uh, gets to be in the faith and religion spot. And I'm just thinking, God help us, you know, at this point, this is, this is where we are as a nation. And I can't help but think of so many parallels with the nation of Judah. And so this message has been given and we're going to pick up today and we're gonna see this message falls right here in 587, 586, it's the years afterwards, but there's gonna be a message of hope. Jeremiah, as he is prophesying, as he's speaking, if you ever read the book of Lamentations, which is right after the book of Jeremiah, and we'll look at Jeremiah later in this study, but Jeremiah, that first chapter, he's looking over Jerusalem, he's seeing the destruction, he's seeing the people being carted off, and those are his laments, as he's saying, it didn't have to be this way. And look what's happening. But here's the good news. The judgment has come, but the good news is, and Isaiah prophesies ahead of time and says, there's good news because I'm going to redeem and I'm gonna restore. It's the message of the gospel, isn't it? What is the gospel? Hey, in the beginning, God created. God had created you, he created me. He created the nation of Israel. But just like Israel, we have all fallen As Isaiah said, we have each gone our own way. We have chosen to be the king of our lives and we must come to that place where we reconcile and we are in fact redeemed only by Christ Jesus. And you're going to see that in the servant. Isaiah is gonna talk about the one who will bring redemption so that we might be reconciled to God Almighty. That's exactly what happened with the nation. We see the judgment. uh, We see the destruction. Before we saw the warning, then the exile. This is the message. This is when uh, Daniel... And Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego during this time, the Babylonian empire, Ezekiel is prophesying. Um, there are, we see Isaiah's prophecy. This is what's going on. Jeremiah is prophesying. Matter of fact, Jeremiah 29, 11, he's saying, look, there's hope. I know you think there's no future. I know that you think your children and your grandchildren will be dispersed and there won't even be a people group, but I want you to know there's hope and I have a future for you. That as a time of people with no country, they're refugees. They have no hope. They have no occupation. They've lost countless numbers of friends and family members. And I, and Jeremiah gives them that, that promise. And then we see the return. We see Cyrus. Isaiah says, look, Cyrus, Isaiah foreshadows, he prophesies, excuse me. He tells what is to come. Look, there's one who will come from the east. We even see him named in Scripture. Cyrus will come from the east. The Medes and the Persians will come, and they will take care of the Babylonian empire, this mighty empire that so destroyed Judah. It's going to be laid waste, and it's going to cease to exist, and you're going to be delivered, and that's exactly what Happens after seventy years, Cyrus comes in. He demolishes Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, and he comes to the people, to the nation of Israel. And even though he is not a quote, definitely not a Christian, but but not a Yahweh, so to speak, he comes and he says, "You know what? I have a different policy." And the Bible literally says that Cyrus is God's anointed. What does he mean by anointed? It means he was selected. That's what he means. Doesn't mean that he's necessarily a godly man, but God has selected him to use him. And Cyrus says this, miracle upon miracle. He said, you know what? You can go back home. You can go back home. I know you've been here for 70 years. I know you've been refugees. I know you've basically been slaves, but you can go home. And when you go home, if you choose to go home, I'll help finance you. I'll help get it started. A matter of fact, he ends up paying for the temple. He ends up paying for the wall and he allows people to go back. Uh, there's estimated maybe a quarter of a million Jews at this point that are, uh, that are told they can go back, but only a remnant goes, only about 10%. Only about 20 to 25,000 actually go back. And then we see again, as God is faithful to keep his promises, we see the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration of Israel. It's a big gospel message, isn't it? Now, as we look at this, as we look at this scripture and we have this background, I want you to understand that. Uh, Isaiah is, such a messianic prophecy, and we're going to see it specifically in 53, but I want to give us just a little background. We're going to start in chapter 40, so we're going to look at a lot of scripture, but stay with me. I think there's so much to glean, and this is, to me, a tremendously encouraging Christ-centric message uh, as we look at this passage, as we look at this scripture, as we look at what God has done for us. So, Um, We start here in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, beginning with verse one. We're going to look at verse one through three and six through eight. And what does he say here? He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. In other words, okay, the judgment has come. The battle has been lost, but I want you to know, I wanna speak comfortly. I wanna speak words of encouragement and comfort to you. Cry to her that the warfare is ended, that her iniquity, your sin is pardoned, and that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And in verse three, catch this verse right here and see if you recognize it. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. In the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Uh, we mentioned this last week whenever a mighty military was moving on nations, they would have to send a group before to clear the roads. Uh, There might be some good trade routes, but for a military, uh, for a massive army, they would have to go and clear trees, clear brush, and build it in such a way that they could bring in their instruments of war, they could bring in their chariots, their wagons, their horses, and so they would do that. And this was a picture, this was a quote of, "There's there's a mighty empire coming. There's a new kingdom coming. And then we hear this in the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter three, John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness in Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, this is John chapter three, verse one, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is John the Baptist pulling this out of Isaiah. He's giving this kingdom, this mighty kingdom, this mighty mighty battle metaphor, so to speak, that there is one coming full of power. There is one coming with a new kingdom. And John is foretelling that Christ would come Then we skip down to verse six through eight in chapter 40. A cry says, cry, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. He's saying our flesh, our bodies are like grass. People are like grass. And our beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. And then verse eight, remembering what he said, who he said the grass was and what the flower was. The grass Withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever the greatness of God. What a great promise, what a great scripture. Then we go on and we see Isaiah 42, and we see four songs are given here. And here we are introduced to someone called the servant. The servant, and this is very mysterious. Uh, for the Jewish people, particularly that day and even today, because we see these four songs of the servant and it talks about someone who will come, someone who will suffer, someone who will die, someone who has great respect, someone who will be high and lifted up. And it seems to be a little bit contradictory, but there's great evidence of this servant who will come. And so scholars have wrestled, particularly Jewish scholars have wrestled with these passages for a long time, particularly Isaiah 53 that we'll see in just a moment. Uh, A lot of them would say, well, it must be talking about um, Isaiah. But no, Isaiah doesn't qualify as we read through these. It wasn't him. Well, maybe it's just talking about the nation of Israel. That, that must be what it is. But then when we get to Isaiah 53, no, it can't be the nation of Israel. Who are these prophecies about? Who is this servant who is to come? And how will the government, how will kings shut their mouth before him? How is that going to work? Who is this mysterious servant? Well, we now know the servant is Jesus the one who was promised, the one who was prophesied. Let's look and see as we see this remarkable 600 years before the time of Christ, over 600 years before the time of Christ, these four songs of the servant who would come. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift his voice or make make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. In verse six, he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to give you as a covenant. Who is our covenant with God now through? Through the blood of Christ, the covenant has been given. No longer are we into the old law. We are now under the grace of Christ and the new covenant that he's given us through the death, burial and resurrection of Christ for all who put our trust and faith in him. Then we see Isaiah 49. We see this song and we look here and we see in verse 1 through 3 and then verse 6 as well. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a short, sharp short, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver he hid me away. He said to me, "You are my servant." Israel, in whom I will be glorified. In verse six, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? Remember, they're dispersed. Remember, they are all over. The Israel, the northern ten tribes, Assyria has decimated and they have scattered all over the earth. Now uh, they're scattered through all out Babylon. And he says, is it too hard? I can bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. That's what Israel was supposed to be. They were supposed to be the light to the nations. They were supposed to show others the goodness and the greatness of Yahweh God, the salvation of Yahweh God, but they had failed. And now God is sending in a new servant a servant who will not fail. We see in Isaiah chapter 50, verses five through seven. And the Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. And think about these next three scriptures. Think about particularly these next two. As you think about the life of Christ, you think about how he suffered. I gave my back to those who strike it. We know the Roman soldiers beat Jesus. Before he before he was whipped with a cat of nine tails, they punched him and they beat him. And the Bible says, and I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. We know this happened to Jesus' face. I hid not my face from disgrace in spitting. They spat upon him. The scriptures teach us. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. And then, in my opinion, the most powerful messianic chapter in all the Old Testament. Uh, matter of fact, this, this is so blatant uh, that some liberal scholars... Uh, certainly many Jewish scholars think, well, this must have been put in there after the time of Christ. This, this could not be what it means. A matter of fact, they can't come up with a good answer for this. How could this been, have been written over 600 years before Christ? How could this be so closely associated? And how could this tell the story of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ, of the crucifixion of Christ, of the beating of Christ? In Isaiah, and I want want to challenge you to read this chapter tonight when you go home uh, today. Read this chapter and think about it. Isaiah 52, beginning with the 13th verse, the fourth and final song of the servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. What is this servant that's going to be high and lifted up, this servant who's going to be killed, this servant who's suffered, this servant whose back have been beaten, whose face has been spit upon, he's high and exalted. This was astonishing and that's what it says. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. We know that Christ was beaten so severely he wasn't just given a lash of 39 times like a Roman citizen because he was a Jew, because he was considered a criminal uh, by their government because he was being charged. They could beat him as long as they wanted. And often people would die and they would be so marred you wouldn't even recognize them. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying here in chapter 53, well over 600 years before. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. In verse 15, he continues and he says, so shall he be sprinkled many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they shall see and that which they have not heard, they understand. We continue in verse 16, the Bible tells us, or excuse me, verse one, who has believed what he has heard from us, okay? We see Jesus proclaiming who he was, Many will not listen. They will not hear. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What does that mean? Who has the lower arm of the Lord been revealed? Matter of fact, you see in scripture, you see in Isaiah multiple times, uh, the mighty right arm, the right arm of the Lord. What is that? Well, kings and generals and leaders of that time, uh, when they would have drawings made of themselves, when they have, would have calligraphy, when they'd have different things kind of created for them, they would often have... Uh, a picture of them with their arm, kind of like we do a muscle. And that picture was, I am the strongest. My right arm, I am the champion. I am the victor. And Isaiah says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We continue. And he says, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, a young plant. He was raised in Galilee in Nazareth, he was raised poor, we know, because his mother and father had to offer two pigeons as his sacrifice when he was born, and that was the sacrifice of the poor. The Bible says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He didn't have a popular father. He didn't come from a strong family of wealth, of power. No one really knew much about his family because they were poor. And he had no beauty that we should seek or desire of him. Uh, you know, sometimes we see these movies, and Jesus, this big, good-looking, strapping guy,'s he got blonde hair and blue eyes, and all the women are looking at him, and the men wish they were. It's not what Isaiah says. See, it was simple. He was plain. You wouldn't look at him from outside and go, "Man, I want to look like him. I want to be like him, but there was something about him. I'll tell you what it was. He was God in the flesh. He was Jesus you wouldn't look at him for his looks. You wouldn't look at him because he was so strong, because he had this great heritage, because he was wealthy, but he was Jesus. The spirit was upon him. And continuing in verse three, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow is acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. We know his disciples hid when he was arrested. He was despised and we esteemed him not. They mocked him as he was on the cross. In verse four, the Bible tells us, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's took on our griefs. He's took on our sin. He's took on our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That's what they yelled at him as he was on the cross. He saved others. Let him save himself. King of kings, let us see you save yourself now. And in verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Here's what's really amazing about this. Crucifixion had not yet been invented. Crucifixion wouldn't come until uh, the Roman empire. This is over 600 years before Christ. And we see this piercing. We know Jesus was pierced in the side, his hands, his feet were pierced and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Why is that? Because God, there had to be a covering, a payment for sin. There had to be a sacrifice before a holy God for us to be in relationship with him. The sin had to be paid. And so Jesus, the sinless lamb, the once and for all perfect lamb of God said, I will take that sin upon me so that mankind might be at peace before God. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And upon him, the chastisement has brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. The old King James, by his bruises, we are healed. In verse six, the Bible tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We all turned every one to his own way but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. The sin has been placed upon Christ Jesus, even though we've each gone our own way. In verse seven, Isaiah continues. And he said, he was oppressed, the servant. He's oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Remember before Pilate? Pilate, all these accusations are being made and Jesus opens not his mouth, not to the accusations. Not that later on, he will respond to Pilate, but to the accusation, he doesn't. Is there mocking him on the cross? He doesn't respond. Yet like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before shears is silent, he opens not his mouth. And verse eight tells us that by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he would be cut off from the land of the living, he would be, he would be killed and stricken for the transgressions of my people. In verse nine, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Think about this verse for just a second. Made his grave with the wicked. Who does he die between? Two thieves, two men of violence. And then when he dies, where's he placed? In Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the said Sanhedrin in his tomb. Those were expensive. Only the rich could buy a, a cave tomb at that point. The, the poor would have been buried under the rocks or even in the dirt. And in many times after crucifixion, they were just thrown out to the dump and the dogs would scavenge. It, it was a terrible situation. But Jesus, not only has he died between two thieves, not only is he taken, but he's placed in a rich man's tomb. And here we are. 600, 650 years before, how, how, how does that happen? It's not like you can make that happen. You know what I am mean? gonna write a script here. They're gonna beat, they beat the tar out of me and then they're gonna pierce me and they're gonna put this and then, but I'm not gonna say anything. No, <laughs> this is the fulfillment of the scripture of the divine word of God. In verse 10, the Bible continues and it says, yet, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for the guilt, here's the offering, here's the atonement. He shall see his offering and he shall prolong his days for the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. We know through the resurrection, Jesus comes back and out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, this can't be the nation of Israel okay? My righteous when my servant will make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Remember what we quoted a while ago, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God because he took upon our sins. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Uh, This is a foreshadowing too. Remember what happens when Jesus is on the cross. They take uh, his, so to speak, his cloak, his cape uh, that had been given to him, his robe, and what do the soldiers do? They gamble for it. They gamble for what he has left, the strong, the soldiers gamble, because he's poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgression, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressions. Even that last line, talking about us, but remember on the cross, what does Jesus do? One one uh, thief mocks him, he says nothing. The other one said, this man's done no wrong. He said, Jesus, uh, would you remember me in your kingdom? And Jesus said, uh, this day I will be with you in paradise. He intercedes for that transgressor, even on the cross. What? What are the coincidences here? This is just one chapter of prophecy. Just one book, one chapter of prophecy that we see of Christ. How powerful. You don't ever have to wonder or doubt, does God know what's going on? Does God know the future? Does God understand? Does God see our pain? Does God see our suffering? In the New Testament, we see, I'll just read a couple more scriptures for you. And we see this transpiring in the scripture. That the gospel writers understood it all. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all knew it. Uh, in Matthew 8, we'll just jump to verse 17. After uh, Jesus comes in and heals, um, heals Peter's mother, and uh, after he's cast out an evil spirits that were pressed by demons, we see in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and he bore our disease. John chapter 12, verse 37 through 38. Though he'd done many signs before them, they still did not believe. So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be filled. Lord, who has believed what we heard from him? To whom has the arm, the power of the Lord been revealed? Matthew chapter 12, verse two through six. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word back to the disciples. John's discouraged. We talked about this last week. He's discouraged. He's wondering, is this the one? Is this the servant? And Jesus answers him, and this is from Isaiah 35. He quotes it and he said, go tell John what you hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And, and the blessed one is the one who is not offended by me. And then Luke chapter four, verse 14 through 21, uh, Jesus comes to his hometown community. He just happens to come on the day that they're uh, using the scroll of Isaiah. Just like our church, there's always a different passage. He just happens to show up that day at the synagogue, uh, starting here in uh, verse 15. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was the custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Here is our reading, Jesus. Here's our reading. Uh, we're, We're honoring you as a rabbi. Do our reading for the day. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is from Isaiah. Because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the tenant and sat down and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And what does he say? And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah, what more evidence do we need? I remember uh, about 18 months ago, my wife had been diagnosed with cancer <clears throat> and uh, matter of fact, literally was down at the hospital doing treatment and I had my mother's car and uh, I was—I had, I had to go pick up the kids. I don't normally do that, but I had to go pick up the kids from school that day and um, I was... Uh, driving her car and I was thinking, we've been told the kids, I was thinking, well, how does this all work? And, uh, you know, how are we gonna tell them? And just kind of praying through and I was just kind of in a gray zone and I actually missed my turn, turned around, and I find myself in a wrong on the wrong street, but I can still get there. So I'm not used to driving on the street. And all of a sudden I see her. Woo, woo, woo. I mean, there's the lights in the back. Uh, one of the finest of flyer mount has pulled me over. And um, I, I actually, had gotten a ticket one time before. And uh, I knew you usually don't get off when you get pulled off and pulled over. And, you know, the guy comes up to you, he says, son, or sir, do you know how fast you are going? I, go, I, I, I don't know. Well, it's, well, you know what the speed limit is. I go 40. He goes, no, it's 30. You're doing 41. I'm thinking, that's great. I'm going to ticket. am My head's not there anyway. And I'm thinking, that's great. He goes, um, he goes where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to pick up my children. I, had, I don't normally pick them up, but I had to pick them up today. And I, don't, I, don't, I didn't tell him anything about what was going on. he said, uh, well, seems like he's kind of heavy today. He said, um, i tell you what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to let you go. Um, here's, here's a little note. And he goes, sign this. And he gave me a little card. And I didn't really pay attention to it. He goes, uh, just slow down and, um, and uh, hope you get to your children in time. I said, okay. He said, but just go Speed limit." I said, all right. I'm going, wow. I didn't think you got off around here. Um and so uh, so I'm going back and I pick up my kids and while I'm waiting I, I look at that little note and it didn't say these exact words, but this is the way I read it. Uh today you were you were speeding but you've been given grace. And uh you've been you've been given grace and there's there's no penalty uh, further uh and basically said, you know, just don't speed anymore, or whatever it said. And so I remember look at that and it was just like God just kind of spoke to me in that moment. And um, I just thought, you know, here's the God of the universe. I'm wondering what's this gonna look like a year from now, two years from now, 10 years from now. I I don't know what it's gonna look like, but I know that God sees me. Because just like God used Cyrus, a pagan king, God used a Flower Mound police officer who pulled me over when I was speeding. And I have this little word, grace has been given. And I just thought, God's grace is gonna sustain me. Even though I was guilty, I deserved a ticket. I know some of you might be going, well, they gave me a ticket. Well, uh, pray more. I don't know what to tell you. But anyway. Um, and I have gotten one before, just for the record. Um, but that moment, that was how God spoke to me that day. That was how he kind of renewed my hope in an unlikely way. And because God knew that day. God knew that day before the being of kind. God knew what was coming. And so he gave me a written word that day. And that's what he's given us today, his written word. He's not surprised by the events of the day, just like he wasn't surprised by the events of Judah, by the destruction of Israel. He's not surprised uh, by what's going on in our world, he knows. But what he does want is for us to be faithful, for us to pray and to seek his face, to seek his heart. Maybe some of you are in that time uh, where you're dealing with a heavy load. You're dealing with bad news. You've had a heavy loss and you're kind of in that place. And you're saying, God, I need you. God, I need hope. Can I tell you, as you read the words of his hope, here's the gospel. We are all created by him. He knows our name. He sees our need. He knows our position. He knows our future. And though we sin, though we've fallen away, he has given Jesus to bring us into reconciliation, to redeem us and to resurrect us and to bring us through redemption of his blood so that we might be restored with God Almighty. It doesn't mean that this path isn't hard. It doesn't mean that it's not froth with difficulties in the shadow of death. Many times it will be and it will happen to everyone, but it does mean that God knows he sees and he has a plan. And though you may be suffering, though you may have had great loss, there is a hope and a future for the believers, just like for Israel. That message, though your nation has fallen away, there's always a remnant that will will prevail. And I have hope for you. And there's an eternal hope, not just today, not just on this earth, but there's an eternal hope for you. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of Isaiah. That's the picture that God has so beautifully grafted for us today that we have hope for eternity in Jesus. Have you received that hope? Have you received that gospel? Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And Father, I pray today as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we prepare to receive from the table of the Lord, as we receive of the bread that that represents the body that was beaten and broken and disfigured, as we receive of the cup that represents the blood that came from your veins as you were pierced, And as Lord, you shed it on our behalf as you became sin, as you became the covering so that we might not only have salvation, but we might have hope and a future for eternity. Just as your word says in 1 Thessalonians 4, Lord, when we suffer, when we struggle, let us grieve not as those without hope. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean it's not painful. It doesn't mean there's not a hole in our heart, but it means that we have a hope, a glorified hope and expectation that one day Jesus, will heal. He will make all things right. He will recreate. He's not just the God of creation. He's the God of recreation. And until that day, Lord, we will trust you. When it looks like things are dark, when it looks like darkness prevails, we will put our hope in the light, the light of the world, Christ Jesus, who is pushing back the darkness, who is preparing an eternity for all who have put their hope and trust in him. And until that day we are reunited with Christ and with those whom we love, who who know Jesus, who've gone on before, we say thank you. And we say, Lord, help us to remember to put our hope in you. Help us to read these promises. Help us to remember how you were beaten and marred, how you suffered and died on our behalf, that we might have life and have it abundantly and eternally. By your stripes, we are here. By your bruises, we have been made well. And we give you thanks and praise. If there's one that doesn't know you, I pray that they would draw you this, that you would draw them this day.